0: Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast where suffering is optional. Uh, Today is May 6th, 2009, and this is a talk I gave uh, March 29th, 2009, at Against the Stream, Buddhist Meditation Society. This is Noah Levine's place, and I was asked to uh, uh, to fill in and uh, speak on a Sunday morning, and my talk was... My Journey. So this is about me and my journey into Buddhism and what I came to understand. Hope you find it interesting. Hope you find it useful. So, my talk at Against the Stream on my journey as a Buddhist. So I I thought what I'd do is I'd uh, talk about my journey as a Buddhist and and why uh, I'm sitting up here today and how I got here um so if you 're either a Buddhist or a meditator or uh, non religious or spiritual, maybe somewhat of what i 'll say makes sense so um I was born a Lutheran, which made my parents happy and and, and it was okay to be a Lutheran for a while um, but i 'm a little older, so in the sixties I was in high school, and it was important. Uh, in the 60s to question all authority and not trust anyone over 30. So I embraced that concept and became an agnostic, realizing that up until that point I hadn't had a relationship with, with God anyway. And um, why not be a nonconformist like the other millions of nonconformists out there? And um, so I was a happy agnostic for uh, until the age of 28, And I suppose this happens to all of us at some point, but for me, it was 28. And one day I woke up and I realized I was going to die. Now, the concept of dying, I was familiar with, but I, I hadn't really looked at myself as having to die. And I don't know why that one day, it was important for me to realize that I had to die, but it woke me up to the fact that if I did have to die, maybe I should have a religion because people with religion seem to die better than people who didn't have religions. Um, so uh, I didn't immediately go for the religion. The first thing I did was I quit smoking and, and I felt better. And then I joined uh, Holiday Health Spa. And so I investigated what it meant to have a body at 28 and then, in working the body, I realized there was a mind attached to that. And then I thought, I'm going to learn how to meditate. And I didn't know anything about meditation. And I had heard that meditation and Buddhism were connected in some way. Um, so I bought a book by Houston Smith called World Religions. And if you haven't read it, it's really a nice introduction to uh, a lot of the religions in the world. And I read the chapter on Buddhism twice, and I said, I'm gonna be a Buddhist. Now there was no logical reason why I should be a Buddhist because I hadn't heard anything about Buddhism. I hadn't read anything about Buddhism. I didn't even know any Buddhists. But it seemed to be about being a human being. It seemed to say you didn't really have to have a relationship with the divine being to be a good human being. And so I looked at myself and I said, well, I qualify. You know, I've never had a relationship with the divine being and I'm born a human being. And this might be a good path to investigate. So I I got another book, the phone book, and found a meditation center. And the meditation center is down the road a bit. It's Olympic in Vermont, uh, just off Olympic in Vermont. It's called International Buddhist Meditation Center. So this was like 1978, 1979. And and there was a guy named Shinzen Young who was uh, uh, an American teacher... Caucasian who had gone to Japan to study Japanese, he was at UCLA, and then he became ordained as a Shingon monk and he came back. And he was like the vice abbot of the center. So my first introduction to Buddhism was with a Caucasian who spoke more languages than I did but spoke English as a first language. And and for me that was really important because I had like a lot of questions and I couldn't phrase them very well, even in English. And somehow he was able to understand what I was trying to say and and give me some answers that I couldn't understand but realized that at some point I probably would. Uh, At that point, he was mostly a Zen guy. And to be honest with you, I was never really attracted to Zen because it was too hard to understand. Um, It was pretty esoteric. And it was like poetry, you know. And, and I just didn't feel comfortable trying to figure out what they were trying to say. But I hung in there anyway and, and got some good stuff. I, I understood that the walls were transparent. And so I, I looked at the walls in the Zendo, wondering how anybody knew that they were transparent and didn't exist in the way I thought they did at that point. And wouldn't it be cool if I could see through those walls and realize they didn't exist in the way I thought they did. So that's how I sort of started. As you can tell, I was a bit confused. Uh, After a couple years uh, struggling in meditation and trying to understand Zen, I gave up. And I came in contact with a, a Theravada teacher, Dr. Ratnasara, who was born in Sri Lanka. He was a Theravada elder. Theravada tradition was his tradition, early Buddhism. Um, as compared to later Buddhism Mahayana. And it started to make sense for me because there was one, two, three, four of these and there were eight of these and there were seven of those. And I said, okay, now this is something I can work with because I don't have to try to decipher it and decode it. All I have to do is figure out what four things they're talking about. And, and that's when I came to a really interesting realization. I realized that my life sucked. <laughs> Now, you know, up until then, I I felt like I was doing pretty good, you know? I had a job, and I had a place to live, and and I had a car, and and I had fun. And I pretty much thought, well, that was what life was all about. And then I came to early Buddhism. And early Buddhism said that life is really difficult. And so I, I was curious, well, why did they say life was so difficult? And they said life was difficult because you're born. Now, I had never thought about birth as being difficult for me, mom maybe, but not me. But because I was born, the Buddha said I was going to have to get old, and I was going to have to get sick, and I was going to have to die. Uh, He then went on to say that everything I really liked would be taken away from me, and the culprit was impermanence and change. And anybody I didn't like, in any place I didn't want to be in, I found myself around those people and in those places And there was nothing I can do about it. So that was like my first real introduction to Buddhism, that my life sucked and then I had to die. And so the second truth, he said, was my life sucked because I was selfish. And I hadn't really thought about it in that way before, but it turned out to be the case that, that all I wanted to think about was me and everything that made me happy I wanted to hold on to as long as I could and everything that made me unhappy I wanted to push away and get rid of as fast as I could. And because I was born with original ignorance, not original sin, I couldn't figure out how to do it. And I now hadn't seen The Matrix yet because it hadn't been made. <laughs> but, but as it turns out, I was sort of living in The Matrix. And 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 so my job was like, how am I going to wake up out of this matrix? Now, the third truth was, nirvana was like the end of my suffering, the end of all future rebirths. I'd never have to be born again. And the end of my karma, which I really wasn't sure if that was a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, uh, so nirvana was the answer that I was supposed to be looking for. And to be honest with you, when I heard about nirvana, I liked the part about not having to suffer, but I, I wasn't really sold on not having to be reborn again because then I wasn't going to exist. And wasn't that sort of like nihilism and, and would it be any fun not existing? Because whatever sadness and sorrow I felt in my existence, at least I was here. Uh, so it took me a, a few years to sort of uh, grasp that concept. And then the karma thing, you know, what goes around comes around, the sort of 60s bumper sticker thing. That always worked for me. You know, I thought karma was just like, you know, what I said and did. And if I was good, then good things happened to me. And I hadn't come to the part yet in Buddhism where there is no good or bad. So I was just trying to be good and have good karma. Then we came to the Eightfold Path. And that was really the eye-opener. Because I started to see that the path was not the goal. That the goal was nirvana, and the path leading to the goal was the Eightfold Path. And so, like, when I started the Eightfold Path, I made that my goal. I'm going to do the Eightfold Path. But then you only do the Eightfold Path and you never achieve Nirvana. So I had to figure out what the Eightfold Path was, and I I read a book, and I read another book, and I read another book. And this is what I came up with. The Eightfold Path is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And then we can take those eight path factors and put them into three categories, personal discipline, mental purification, and wisdom. And I came to understand if I wanted to be a good Buddhist, I needed to be ethical. I needed to have sort of a moral base. And that was going to then be the the foundation of my meditation practice. And if I wanted to become an official Buddhist, I needed to take the five precepts, which is pretty scary because I equated the five precepts with the Ten Commandments, And then I found out what the five precepts were, and I realized that they were training precepts, that I was gonna train myself, that the Buddha wasn't gonna train me, and that God wasn't gonna criticize me, but I was gonna accept these training precepts so I could be more skillful and I could suffer less. So the first training precept is I I choose not to take life. And up until that point, I hadn't killed any human beings. I thought I was doing pretty good. Uh, But I had killed mosquitoes on occasion and ants and cockroaches, and I realized that they just wanted to live also. Um, I couldn't figure out why, but they did. And then I said to myself, well, what is this deal about life anyway? And and then I thought, well, how long was it before I was here? And, And two weeks ago, I was in Palos Verdes Peninsula High School. I was talking to a comparative religions class, and I said to the class, how long was it before you were here? And one of the girls raised her hand and said, literally or figuratively? And I said, literally, how long was it before you were born? And she paused and thought, and she said, 2,000 years. And I said, creationist. And she smiled. And then I said, well, it may be that you haven't been here forever, and that you're only here for a few years, and then you'll not be here forever again. Because Christians, this may be the first time they ever got here. I don't know what they were doing before then. As a Buddhist, we feel this is just another one of those lifetimes, and we're trying to achieve that nirvana. So if it is that hard to be born, if you've never been here before, and now you're here, and it's so hard to get born, then then just that should be enough to honor life. Uh, and yet, it doesn't seem to be the case. So I started training myself not to kill human beings, not to kill lions and tigers and bears, and eventually get to the place where I don't have to kill mosquitoes and cockroaches. But sometimes you do. And then I was faced with that dilemma, that paradox. It's always wrong to kill, but sometimes it's necessary. And so, so I opted for encouraging them to have a good rebirth and come back as a human being. And then I would kill them. <laughs> And and accept the responsibility because you're accountable in Buddhism. You can't say I didn't know, and even if you didn't know, you're still accountable, which really sort of sucks too. So I worked with not killing, and then I worked with not taking what is not given. That's the second thing, and I'm thinking, okay, um, but you know, I own a lot of stuff, and a lot of people own stuff, and we all have receipts. And after all, we are consumers of America, aren't we? Didn't we give up our citizenship a few years ago so we could consume as much as we wanted? And, and then I thought to myself, but well, we really don't own anything anyway, do we? We just sort of like using the stuff we think we own because we have a receipt until somebody wants it more than we do, until we can't find it or until it breaks. So this stuff is all like being used by us. And some of us have so much stuff to use that we can't get to using it for a while and we buy a storage locker. And then we keep that stuff there until it's time to use it. So if ownership's a big illusion, why does it matter if we take stuff or not? And I came to the conclusion because people think they own stuff. So if you think you own it and somebody takes it, then you're going to be uncomfortable with that person, and it may even ruin your day. And so it's best not to take stuff that people think they own because it creates more suffering rather than less. Okay, working with it so far. Third Third one, oh, this was a tough one. No sexual misconduct. You know, and that's one of the reasons I moved to L.A., because everything is okay. <laughs> you know, and then you come into this place where it says, the Buddha wants you to not have sexual misconduct because it increases suffering. And I tell you, when you try to look up no sexual misconduct on Google, it's hard to find what sexual misconduct is. So <laughs> let me give you... Uh, a clue. Let me tell you what I found. And it came to me in a book I was reading by Bhikkhu Bodhi, published by the Buddhist Publication Society in Sri Lanka. It's a little 100-page book. It's available on my website. It's the Eightfold Path. And it's one of the best explanations of the Eightfold Path path that I have found. And Bhikkhu Bodhi is also a Caucasian. went to Sri Lanka, a Theravada ordination. And this is what he came up with. After reading the Pali Canon, Why? what's wrong with sex and what you shouldn't do as a Buddhist. He said there were four things that you shouldn't do if you're a lay Buddhist, and there were a million things you shouldn't do if you're a monk or nun. <laughs> but as a lay Buddhist, you should never have sex with people who are married, because that causes a whole lot of suffering. You shouldn't have sex with people who are engaged, that causes a lot of suffering. You shouldn't have sex with children, causes a lot of suffering, and you shouldn't have sex with people against the will. It causes a lot of suffering, and then that's all the Buddha said. And I'm going, wow, that is so cool. So I can still do like a lot of stuff, I just have to avoid those things. And if you think about those four things, three of those things deal with family. And and so even though Buddhism is a monastic tradition, the Buddha realized family is an important part of community, and it needed to be honored, and it needed to be protected. And so, those four things. Now, you might say to yourself, well, why are Buddhist monks and nuns celibate? And let me tell you what I came up with on this. Two reasons why we're celibate. First reason is, and I bet you nowhere can appreciate this. The first reason is, we need to have a life of simplicity so it can be supported by donations. We live in an economy of generosity. Okay, we don't have a nine-to-five. And so people support us so we don't have to have a nine-to-five so we can practice and read and understand and share and be an example and all those kind of things. So, small footprint. If you want to get married and you want to have children and you want to have a car and you want to have a house and you want to have all those kind of things, you're going to need a really big donation basket. And it's going to need to be passed around a lot of times to keep your lifestyle going. So we want to have a small lifestyle. So simplicity is one of the reasons Buddhist monks and nuns is celibate. Now, uh, please don't take this wrong. The second reason Buddhist monks and celibate is because in an intimate relationship you can be happy, you can be in love, you can be satisfied. You can be a lot of things but one thing. And that one thing you'll never be in a relationship is free. So a Buddhist monk or nun has the ultimate goal of being free. And that requires not being in an intimate relationship. So simplicity and freedom are the two reasons Buddhist monks and nuns are celibate. Now, if you go into the Catholic tradition, a whole different ballgame. A lot of different reasons. So I'm working through this now, and now we come to the fourth one, not to speak unskillfully. I'm going to train myself not to lie, not to use harsh speech, not to use malicious speech not to gossip or get involved in idle chatter, I'm going to try not to watch TMZ, stuff like that, you know? And, and when you start to speak skillfully in a kind way and in a supportive way, it'll, suffering does become smaller for people and yourself. Suffering is decreased. So it's a good thing, but it's one of the most difficult things because speech happens so quickly. And if you're like I am, speaking a lot to a variety of people, Uh, You can really misspeak easily. And that always comes back to haunt you. Karma, it's there. Now the fifth one, and it seems to be the most difficult one, is not to consume intoxicants. So when I became an official Buddhist and took this precept, I changed it for myself. I I got permission to change it. And I changed it to, I'm not going to consume intoxicants to the point of intoxication. So I'm going to drink, but I'm not going to get drunk. And when I want that burrito and that beer and that salsa and those chips, it'll be okay. So I worked with that for a couple years, but then I realized I'm sort of defeating the whole purpose of my meditation practice because my meditation practice is to, is to allow me to realize insight and wisdom and create more compassion. So every day I got up and meditated, every evening I meditated, I'm getting this wisdom, I'm getting this compassion, it's working fine. And then I go out and have a case of beer and I become illiterate, cause a lot of problems, cause a lot of suffering, and all that practice was for naught. So I, I'm seeing that, yeah, it's really important not to consume intoxicants, not because there's anything wrong with it necessarily, but it does steal your wisdom, and one of the things we want as a Buddhist is a whole lot of wisdom. So there it was. That was with the five precepts just like laid out for me in the early Buddhist tradition of Theravada and then that was like the foundation of my meditation practice and then I was faced with this dilemma and probably some of you are too what kind of meditation did the Buddha do? because if you go to like the, like the, like the Theravada people they're saying insight, insight, always do insight that's what the Buddha did and then you go into like the Zen people and they go, no, tranquility, tranquility samatha, samatha deep states of concentration and I'm thinking, well, which one did the Buddha do? You know, And if you read the Eightfold Path, you realize that the Buddha did both of them. He was taught how to do one. He was taught how to do Samatha meditation. He was taught how to do tranquility meditation. And he actually did tranquility medita- meditation until the day he died. The very moment he was dying, he was in the fourth Ajana. He was in the fourth level of tranquility. But he rediscovered inside meditation, and that word rediscovered is really important because in the early Buddhist tradition from Sri Lanka, he was the 28th Buddha, so there were 27 before him. And the 27th Buddha, his teachings had died to the world and nobody was practicing Buddhism, and then Siddhartha was reborn, and and in his nirvana started the wheel of Dharma turning again. So he's the 28th Buddha, and we're still practicing his teachings. So he rediscovered insight meditation, and he used insight meditation to achieve nirvana, and then he never needed to do insight meditation again because it had worked. He had reached the goal. He had seen the fruition of that in his own life. So I thought, for me, that was really interesting, inside meditation until nirvana. And then I said, well, how long does it take to achieve nirvana? And then I found the Jataka tales in early Buddhism, and the Jataka tales are 550 tales of the Buddha as a Bodhisattva, 550 lifetimes. So, in my overly simplistic way of understanding Buddhism, I said to myself, okay, so the Buddha was at least born 550 times as a Bodhisattva, then in his last lifetime as Siddhartha, it took him 35 more years, and then he achieved nirvana, so you may have to do insight meditation for 550 lifetimes plus 35 years. And then you can let that go and just do tranquility meditation until you die. Okay. So... When I came to meditation, it was, I was, again, confused because nobody really... They just said, watch your breath. And I'm thinking, but what does this mean? And what am I supposed to do? And, and why do I hurt so much physically and emotionally when I meditate? Isn't it supposed to be like lights? And isn't it supposed to be like pleasure and tingling and good stuff? Why, for me, was it always bad stuff for the first couple of years of my meditation practice? And was anybody else suffering as much as I was? Because everybody looked like they were sitting really well, not moving at all. And they look I'm sure they were in deep states of trance and and bliss and and rapture. And I was in the hell realm. And and so then I, I came upon the, the model of tranquility meditation. And I'll just share that briefly with you. The four jhanas. There's actually eight, but four of them are formless and pretty esoteric and philosophical, but the four form jhanas for me were really important because then I could see in my own practice how I was doing. First jhana, the first level of tranquility, five characteristics, applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, equanimity. Second jhana, three characteristics. Happiness, bliss, equanimity. Third jhana, two characteristics, happiness, equanimity. Fourth jhana, one characteristic, equanimity, perfect balance of mind, profound acceptance of the way life is. It came to me that if we're studying Buddhist meditation, what we're doing is getting rid of stuff, not gaining anything, because the Buddha said we're already perfect, we already have as much wisdom as we need, we need to get rid of the ignorance that prevents us realizing our wisdom. We already have as much compassion as we need, we just need to get rid of the hatred and anger which sort of blocks our compassion, and loving kindness. We already have as much generosity as we ever need. We just need to get rid of our greed. We already have as much love as we'll ever need. We just need to get rid of our lust. So Buddhism is a path of renunciation, and even Buddhist meditation is a path of renunciation. It's a way of getting rid of the stuff that prevents us from realizing we're already perfect. Perfect as a human being. Cool. So you look at the four jhanas, and you keep giving stuff up. So, first jhana, five characteristics, apply: thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, equanimity. You're sitting quietly on the floor, you close your eyes, you bring the attention of your mind to the tip of your nose, you feel the sensation of breath going out and coming in, going out and coming in. As you become more and more one-pointed and focused on the object of meditation, you have a sense of happiness in your mind, a sense of pleasure in your body, and the beginning of peace, the beginning of equanimity. As you continue to do that, what happens is you sort of let go of applied thought, sustained thought. All you need now is just to bring your attention to the sensation of breath, and it stays there all by itself. You have trained it to stay there. You have a greater sense of pleasure, physical pleasure, a greater sense of happiness, and a greater sense of peace. But now you want to go deeper, because you want to experience all the jhanas. And you realize you're going to have to give something up. And what the Buddha says you need to give up is pleasure. And that really bummed me out because I didn't want to give up my pleasure. And then I said to myself, how am I going to give up my pleasure? If my body gives me pleasure, how can I not feel the pleasure if my body's giving it to me? Am I supposed to go into denial or not notice it, that I'm feeling pleasure? And then I reread it and reread it and started to understand what he was talking about. We're not supposed to give up our pleasure, we're supposed to give up our attachment to pleasure. And I said, okay, okay, but that's really hard to give up the attachment to pleasure. And then the Buddha said, well, you can come through the back door on this. He said, you can give up your aversion to pain. If you give up your aversion to pain, you'll automatically giving up your attachment to pleasure. Now, I had a lot of pain to work with, so I'm thinking, I'm going to give up my aversion to pain. So how am I going to do that? Well, I'm going to sit quietly, and I'm just going to suffer. I'm going to watch the pain arise in my knees and my back, and I'm just going to observe it. And I'm not going to be moved by it. I'm not going to stretch my legs. I'm going to just sit there through the whole thing. And if I'll never walk again, it's worth it. You know, And so I sat there and sat there, and I started to realize that the pain was just simply the label I gave that really, really, really strong sensation coming from my knee. And that really strong sensation wasn't there always. It kept fluctuating. It got stronger and it got weaker, and sometimes it almost seemed to go away for a while, and then it would come back just to get my attention, just to let me know that I'd be dead soon if I didn't move. Because really, pain is indicating to us that we're going to die. And if you don't observe the pain and do something about it, you will die. But it might take you 20 or 30 years, you know. But in that state of mind, in that meditation state of mind, it seems like we're going to die today, in this very moment. Or at least not be able to walk ever again. And so I had to deal with fear, and I had to have courage, and I had to have a place of acceptance, and I had to decode the pain and see the sensation. And once I was able to sort of sit with that sensation my aversion to pain became much weaker and my attachment to pleasure became weaker as well. So then you go into like this next place and you only have two things to go now. You have happiness and you have equanimity and what are you going to give up? You're going to give up happiness. But not real happiness. You're going to give up your attachment to happiness and your aversion to sadness. And finally, if you're able to do that and figure out how to do that, one more characteristic and that's perfect balance, equanimity, peace, peace, Profound acceptance of the way your life is in the present moment, just the way it is. Don't need to change anything. Now, what did the Buddha find this to be? Uh, he found this to be problematic. Because when you got up off your cushion, went out, got in your car, went on the four or five freeway, and somebody cuts you off, you know, all that stuff comes back. It's not permanent. So he said, I need to find a permanent way. A permanent way to come to this place of peace, so I can carry it with me wherever I go without having to have a zendo and, and incense and the Buddha statue. And that's where insight meditation comes in. And there's four kinds of insight meditation. There's mindfulness of the body, there's mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of mental objects. And the one I like to talk about is the one that's easiest for me to understand, and that's mindfulness of feelings and mindfulness of sensations. And the Buddha said we have three kinds of sensations, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. And the whole idea is just sort of become aware of the sensations of the mind. we have emotional sensations and mind sensations, we have physical sensations, and just be aware of them and note them and, and note whether it 's pleasant or unpleasant. most of the time, neutral ones won 't get our attention, and we 're sort of going through that stuff pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant and then and then there's a point where we sort of go into this into this rumination, we start reflecting we start we start observing these sensations in relationship to the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, which will liberate us forever from suffering. And now that really got me. Okay, the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom, what could those be? And how can those liberate me? And how can I apply that to my sensations? Well, they are, and I'm sure you've heard these before, impermanence, suffering, and not self. Those are the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom that will liberate us from our suffering and from all future rebirths, and from our karma. And so I started with impermanence, okay? And I said to myself, were all these sensations impermanent? Were they fixed? Were they vibratory in nature? And I thought about it, and I thought about it, and I said to myself, well, they're all impermanent, because none of the sensations lasted forever in the same way. They they, they kept changing, and sometimes they would even go away for a while. So if all the sensations I became aware of in mind and body were impermanent, could I apply that now to the world around me and see if anything in the world was permanent? And I looked and I looked and I couldn't find anything that was permanent in the world. Everything kept changing. Even mountains, after a few million years, turned back into sand. So I'm going, okay, so like the whole world's impermanent and like I'm impermanent and like, and there's really nothing to hold on to in this world. There's no place to stand that's stable because it's always in a constant state of flux. And maybe that's one of the underlying factors of my dis-ease and discomfort in this world is that I, that I keep hoping for permanence, and all I find is impermanence. And it drives me sort of nuts. And it gives me a feeling that uh, I'm not in control. And you go, "Whoa, okay. So now we come into this place Well, were all these sensations uh, ultimately unsatisfactory. And I'd have to say, looking at some of those sensations, some were good. I enjoyed some of them. A lot of them weren't so good. So I noted that as being unpleasant. But then if you factor impermanence into the pleasant sensations, and when the pleasant ones change, then they become unpleasant because you don't want them to change because you're attached to that. And so with impermanence, every sensation ultimately becomes unsatisfactory. So I was starting to see, putting myself in this relationship of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness. So so what I like about myself today, when it changes, uh, I'll be bummed. And thankfully, what I don't like about myself today, when it changes, I'll be happy. But then there comes this point where it all changes and it never gets any better. Like, have you ever talked to somebody who's like really old? There was this guy, he's 96, and he was part of... Uh, government in some way, and he was well-known, and and they were interviewing him, and they asked him, what can you tell me about being 96? And he thought for a moment and said, I don't recommend it. (laughs) And so what we start to see, it seems, that we have uh, some really good years in the middle. We have a lot of confusing years to begin with, and we have some really sort of uncomfortable years at the end. And so if we think it's good now... uh, it'll never get any better than this. And if we think it's bad now, it'll never get any better than this. Because when it does get better, it'll simply be right now. So now is all we have to work with. And so this is the best day we're ever going to have. Now, that bums you out, I'm sorry. (laughs) But this is the day we're working with. So I'm going, okay. So impermanence and unsatisfactoriness and now we come to the hardest thing for me to understand. And I tell you, I tried, and it was not self. But back in those days, in the 80s, it was like no self. You don't want to be self. Self is your enemy. Self creates all these problems for you. And if you could just get rid of self, then it would be really wonderful. Well, we know that's not the case now. All we have to do is look at people like Ronald Reagan in his last years with Alzheimer's, and you realize self has a function to play. And you get rid of self, and people have to keep you alive. So you don't want to get rid of self. And uh, so it's, instead of no self, it's not self. Can I not be self? And then I said to myself, well, what is self? Who am I? What is this thing people keep talking about? Because it just seems like they're talking about what I am. And I started reading a book uh, by um, Aldous Huxley, Perennial Philosophy and I got some insights into transcendent self. And then I found a book in Bodhi Use bookstore back in the 80s, written by Ken Wilber called Spectrum of Consciousness. It was a dog-eared, used, highlighted copy for three bucks. And somehow I picked it up, I read a few pages, and I bought it. And that f- allowed me to understand what the heck everybody was talking about when it comes to self. That self turns out to be this process And it's it's the process that we have as human beings, unlike any other animal in the world. They have little selves, and they have functional selves up to a point, but we have this amazing self that can change the whole world. We can build dams and roads and cars, and we can blow up the whole world now. We're so cool with ourselves. And we can make peace as well if we choose to, you know, A lot of people think peace might be boring, so I, I think well, it's going to be a while until we get there. But it's just this incredible consciousness that we have. And, uh, and you know what I found was so interesting? I, I thought to myself, I wonder who the first one was. Who was the first human that became self-aware? Because there probably was a time in our evolution when we didn't have a really big self. It was probably like a little self, like the dog self or the cat self. and then, And then somehow somebody got the big self and you wonder who that person was and what they must have thought when they woke up in a real way to the world and saw it through self and not through intuition or instinct. Wow. And then thankfully they found some people to mate with and we had more big selves being born all the time. And I guess the big self became dominant in in humankind because now most of us have this really big self. You know, and it's, and it's so cool. But, but is that who we really are? And I, I struggle with this, and I realized, well, it's, it's, it's who I am at a relative level. And it's important to be that person. Because people get scared if you say you're not who they think you are. You know, if you go up to your, your mom and say, you know, you don't really know who I am. You know, that I'm nothing other than a self that's a process. And I'm going to transcend that. And your mom says, Counseling. <laughs> you need some counseling. So, we don't want to scare people. We don't want to scare people into thinking that we have, have lost ourselves. But we want to work with ourselves enough to, to transcend it and not have it be our master, it seems to me. That, that really make this self a tool that we can use in this very complicated society to interact and have relationships and support ourselves and, and all those kind of things that self is useful in doing. But one self becomes dominant, one self becomes king. Whoa. It, it can really wreck our life. So I'm working with this. I'm working with this. And then I go into this place of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Robert Pirsig, What a great book that is, and still is. It's on audio now if you want, it, don't want to read it and just want to listen to it. Professor Bozeman Montana, in the book, gives his uh, class something to do. Say, he says, write me an article, an essay on quality. Pick anything you want. I want you to tell me where the quality of that thing exists. Everybody in that class failed. Not one person passed with a grade. They all knew what quality was, and they saw it, but they couldn't describe it. And they couldn't figure out where it came from. So as I'm reading this book, I thought to myself, wouldn't it be cool if the author and his buddy, who had the BMW, went out to the parking lot and they took the motorcycles apart into their 10,000 pieces? And you gave each of them a magnifying glass and said to them, find me the quality of your motorcycle. Which part does it exist? The cables or the tires or the brake pads. Where does the quality exist? And somehow they couldn't find the quality of their motorcycle when it was in 10,000 pieces. But when the 10,000 pieces came together and created one, the great one, quality arose. Self arose. Identity arose. Wow. Wow. So as I, as I thought about that, I, I looked at myself and I said, you know, the Buddha referred to human beings as mind and body, as the five aggregates, as the 32 parts of the body. But he never really referred to humans as one thing. And then I said to myself, where does this great one come from? And I thought, maybe monotheism. That in Buddhism, coming out of Hinduism, we had a hierarchy of gods, and we had bigger gods and better gods, and we have weaker gods and smaller gods, but there was never one ultimate god that was empowered to do everything until monotheism. And then we had this, like, one God. And one became the best number, the ultimate number. And, you know, when I was in high school, one was the loneliest number that could ever be. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, maybe maybe we need to deconstruct the one. Maybe we need to see what makes up the one, you know? And that will allow us to see the reality, the the true nature. And so for some reason, self and quality arise because of one. And when one becomes many, they are manageable and understandable. So I started to see that maybe the best thing in the world is not one and uniformity, but diversity and unity. Maybe community is more important than all of us being the same, and if you've ever gone to an interreligious gathering, they all want to be one, and doesn't that just make you want to go? Uh, because we don't need to be one; we're already connected. You know, they just don't see how we're already connected. Sometimes I tell them, and they're not satisfied with that. They still want me to be one. You know. So as I struggled through impermanence and suffering and not self, I came to understand that this is a profound path. That this path is really designed for human beings. And you have to be a human being to achieve nirvana, as far as I can tell. Uh, and, and, And when you achieve nirvana, you actually have this profound acceptance of the way things are, this healthy detachment. You don't need to change anything, because everything is perfect already and there's nothing to hold on to, and there's no one to hold on to anything, even if there was something to hold on to, and you get this sort of place where it's all flow and flux and change, and you're okay with it because now there's no one and nothing to defend. It's okay that there is peace, but there's absolutely no peace in the world. There is peace inside, and then if enough of us find our own inner peace, world peace will occur all by itself. So I don't think we need to take a systemic approach to peace in the world. I think we need to take an individual approach to peace. And if we can find our peace, we can help others find their peace. So now we come to like the last two path factors, which would be right view and right intention. And a traditionally, right view is understanding karma and understanding the four noble truths. And right intention is to have compassion and wisdom and loving kindness and generosity. And if those are your only intentions and your speech and action manifest skillfully in the world around you, and no one suffers because of you, and you suffer far less because of you. And cool, okay, so I got it. But that was like years and years ago, and I'm still trotting the path, and I still have a lot of work to do that it doesn't seem to be linear i have come to understand it seems to have success and failure around every corner and three steps forward and four steps back and and you just sort of keep trotting the path like you brush your teeth you know hoping that your teeth won't fall out and hoping you'll find nirvana one day and then the buddha said well you already achieved nirvana it's already there you just need to realize it so the path i suppose allows us to realize that we're already there and that's cool. So there's no place for us to go. We don't have to go to India. We don't have to go to Sri Lanka. All we have to do is go find ourselves and then transcend that. I'm going to stop there. And if anybody has any questions, I'd love to try to answer them. And if nobody has any questions, we can end with love loving-kindness meditation. But questions? Anybody stimulated by what I said or... Did it clarify or demystify or did it completely screw you up? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it. That was my talk at Against the Stream, Buddhist Meditation Society on my journey as a Buddhist. Hope you found it useful. Hope you found it interesting. If you'd like to know more about me, my website is kusala, k u s a l a dot info k u s a l a dot info. If you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism, please visit info. that's info. Well, thanks for listening. I hope to have more podcasts posted soon. Until then, be happy, be peaceful and most of all, be free from suffering